Hi there, I am Sarah Jane Case, and I am the host of your new favorite show, Enneagram and Coffee. This podcast is dedicated to discussing the beautiful and hard parts of being human. We use the tool, the Enneagram, a personality map that has taken over the world for increased self-compassion, personal growth, and healthier relationships. If this sounds up your alley, listen to Enneagram and Coffee on the iHeart app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts online. Hello, everyone. Today's episode is with Rosalia Rivera. Rosalia is a passionate consent educator, sexual literacy advocate, TED speaker, change agent, and survivor turned thriver. She is also the host of About Consent podcast, the founder of Consent Parenting, and creatrix of Consentware. She has three missions. Number one, to help parents and caregivers to empower their children and their lives through consent education. Number two, to help childhood sexual trauma survivors find their voice, rediscover their power, and reclaim their innate sexual divinity. And number three, to dismantle shame around sexuality through education and awareness. In today's episode, we talk about how a parent can get started teaching their kids about body safety, the definition of grooming and signs to look out for, defining secret safety, age-appropriate discussions, and more. Let's dive right in. Just a little disclaimer before we start this episode, this podcast does not provide medical advice. The information on this podcast is for informational purposes only. No material on this site is intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Good evening, Rosalia. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, we're excited to have you. I think this is a great topic for everybody to learn more about. And I'd love to jump in just talking to you about your website, Consent Parenting, just kind of how you got into that and what made you launch that. And I know you also have a podcast that's about consent and it has some really excellent topics on there as well. So if you just want to talk a little bit as to how you got started with all of that, that would be awesome. Sure. I actually have a background in marketing and I was working as a, well, I had a, an agency and when my child was about five, he wanted to do summer camp, which was great because I needed, you know, to keep him going somewhere and had gone transitioning from having someone care for my child at home to now putting them somewhere new. And when I signed him up, I was really excited because I knew he was really into science. It was science camp, day camp. But then about a day before we were going to, you know, bring him to the camp, I had a panic attack and realized that I didn't know everybody there. I wasn't totally sure that I felt that he was going to be safe. And some of these feelings kind of came up that made me feel like they were irrational. And it's like, am I being paranoid or overprotective or overreacting? And it really shook me up to the point where I, I almost didn't put him in. But I made a promise to myself that day that I was going to do everything that I could to educate myself so I could educate my child and figure out how to make sure that the places I was going to send them to were safe. And that kind of got me started on the journey of, you know, learning about abuse prevention and found that because of my own experience, which actually didn't even surface really until I delved into this, but my own abuse actually, as a, so I'm a survivor as well of child sexual abuse, and my own experiences hadn't really come to the surface until I started learning about this. And because of what it was triggering, I realized I need to figure out how to move through this because I want to make sure I'm educating my child. Yeah. And so that, you know, put me on this journey of self-healing, you know, seeking out help and support. And I realized that there weren't any resources for parents like me that were going through this experience. And I was like, I can't be the only one who's, you know, dealing with this. And as I've learned you know, there are so many parents who have had these experiences and they don't know how to teach their children. And the statistics that I learned about how prevalent it is, and particularly for parents who are survivors who can't teach their kids because they get triggered and they're, they're, they just become overprotective, but then they don't really actually empower their kids with the right information. So that's really what kind of gave rise to consent parenting. And I thought, you know, this is really 
a soul calling for me mm-hmm. because of the fact that I also have survivors in my family. My sister's a survivor. My mom, I came to find out, is also a survivor. And so I realized this was intergenerational. And I, I knew that this was the mission that I was really put here to do and help others protect their families, break the cycles and become empowered so we can create consent culture. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's amazing. I mean, when did you start it? What year was it? 2017 was the year when it when I embarked on the journey and started really educating myself, putting all of it into practice. Mm-hmm. I you know, got certified and really delved into all of the, you know, the different trainings that there are available both in Canada and the US because I live in Canada, but you know, as it is a global problem, you know, I wanted to try to get as much information for how it how different cultures are also you know, implementing information about abuse prevention or where they're lacking. And so, yeah, that, that experience really shook me to my core, really. Like once I realized that when that happened with my child, it was actually about two to three years before that. But when I decided to do this, you know, as a shift to career, it was in 2017. So probably it was about 2014 when that happened with my son. And then I started my own healing journey, embarking on it learning all the tools and and educating myself to be able to help others. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I was chatting with my community a few, I think it was last week, and it was on the topic of rape and and how incredibly common it is and the statistics surrounding it. And, you know, the second I kind of opened that up, I received, I mean, so many messages that I, I mean, half of them I couldn't even get to, but of just women coming forward and just sharing their story. And the most common theme I will say, and and this is a woman, you know, as a mother reflecting back onto her childhood, right? And saying, it took me 15, 20, 25 years to even recognize that this was sexual abuse Mm -hmm. because of so many different reasons, because they felt really safe with somebody and, and, you know, they they thought it was their fault or they thought, you know, they were in a relationship and because they were in a relationship, they thought that was automatic consent, even though they didn't want to do something. And so they never said or did anything about it or, you know, situations such as those. And, you know, I started talking with these women and I just, you know, and not that this doesn't happen to men, but this just happened to be women that were messaging me. And I, I was just kind of floored to just recognize how incredibly common it was, but also to recognize that they didn't even realize what was happening when it happened. It wasn't until years, decades later that they were able to recognize that this had happened to them and were able to seek help for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm such a huge believer in you know knowledge is power. And the more you know, I mean, sometimes things are scary hearing statistics might be scary and all of those things, but you can't fix it or, you know, like educate your children until you know yourself what you're up against, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just really excited to learn from you today. Thank you. And, and it is so common. I mean, I I think that the reason why I realized how prevalent it was is because we haven't been educated, you know, and I think it, it typically, I've seen two particular perspectives when I started teaching this was the parents who were not survivors that d- didn't see this as a potential risk. And they thought it didn't happen to me. I, you know, they may not know things like, you know, 90% of abuse happens by people that, you know, and trust, including family members. Most people don't realize that they think it's still the you know, stranger that's going to like come out of the bush and Mm -hmm. take your kid away in a white van, right? The stranger danger. And that's not it at all. And so because we haven't been educated, there's this whole camp of parents that don't realize how prevalent it is, Mm -hmm. and don't take steps to, you know, find ways to protect their families. And then on the other side is the parents who are survivors who are acutely aware, and are frightened, and you know, they feel that they're overprotective or paranoid, but they don't know what else to do. So this is, you know, the, the struggle that one set is so triggered that they can't do the education. And the other camp is that they don't feel that it's a risk and don't do the education. So we have all of these kids that are left in vulnerable predicaments that are at high risk. And, you know, when you start to educate yourself and realize you, you see that, that there's definitely a need 
for how to teach kids. And then the question is, how do we start? Right. Right. And that's where I step in. So, but it's so important. And, and the work that we do now as parents can prevent the next wave of Me Too. Right. And you know, this is not even something I ever learned about in school. So you think about it and I mean, I don't know if some schools do, you know, there might be, but when I was growing up, I definitely didn't have anything on this. And so when you look at what you just mentioned, which is you have the group of parents that never experienced it, so they don't feel the need to educate their children about it. And then you have the other group that did experience it, but don't know how to talk to their children about it. And then there's just no talking about it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And it's such an important thing that we need to be talking to our children about it, no matter how uncomfortable it might seem in the beginning, but it's something that we definitely need to be talking to them about. So yeah, well, and the good news is it doesn't have to be uncomfortable. I think a lot of parents fear that it's going to be this really scary topic. And it actually can be a really empowering and for survivors, it can actually be a very healing process to do this education with your kids. So I always, you know, tell parents, let's reframe how we think about it. It doesn't have to be a scary conversation. And, and it's not just one conversation, you know, it's, it's an ongoing process, but it can be really empowering for everybody involved. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so let's start with what is the real magnitude of the issue that parents don't know and who here is at risk? So by nature, the fact that children are children, all children are at risk. There are some groups that are at higher risks. For example, children with disabilities or who are on the spectrum are at higher risk. Children that are perhaps in lower income homes where there are separated parents are at higher risk. So there are some groups that are definitely at higher risk, but in general, it's across the board. And in terms of the statistics in the United States, it's one in four girls and one in six boys. So if you're looking at a classroom of children, a classroom of 20 kids, we're talking at least four kids. And this is these numbers, in my opinion, are conservative because we know that children don't report. Like they don't have the skills or the information or the or the access to the supportive adults that can help them stop it. And we know that if children do report, it's not until it's gone on for a certain amount of time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it is very prevalent, it is underreported. And it is something that we just need more information and more data on because it is so underreported. But that indicates that it's a much larger problem than we even realize. Yeah. So how can how can I or parents listening get started teaching their kids about body safety? Yeah, so the first thing that I always tell parents is we have to start with helping kids understand their body rights, which is the basis and the foundation for body safety is really learning about body autonomy and helping to practice that in the home. And that's why I always say I'm a consent educator and an abuse prevention expert because they're two different things. Consent is really about body autonomy, rights, boundaries, the concept of consent, which is permission. And then we have abuse prevention, which is really teaching kids about safe versus unsafe touch, secret safety, those kinds of things. So when we're starting, we want to really start with that foundation of consent education, because that really empowers kids. You know, I think a lot of people think, well, I have to teach my kid that there's scary people in the world. We don't need to start there. We need to start with empowering our kids about their rights letting them understand that their voice matters, that we will respect their autonomy, that we give them that, that we honor their voice, you know, so when they speak up, we're going to listen and that we are going to advocate for them and help them learn how to develop their boundaries, how to implement their boundaries and how to uphold them. And that's the real foundation. Once you start from there, then we can start to talk about private parts and private part safety. So there is a process that I particularly feel strongly about, which is you start with empowering the child about their rights, and then you move into abuse prevention education. Mm. Yeah, I like that. All right. So let's talk about, I'm, I'm really interested to hear about this. So what is grooming and what are signs that we need to be looking out for? This is such an important topic. And I think for parents, when they start to educate themselves about this. I think they think I'm going to, you know, start talking to my child. But one of the first things that you do need to do, like once you've started the consent education at home, mm -hmm. is to start educating yourself about this concept of grooming, which very few parents know, because again, they think of stranger danger as the, you know, the thing to fear. 
But as I mentioned, 90% of abuse happens by people you know and trust. And an offender is going to groom not just the child, but also the family. What grooming essentially is, is the strategy or the strategies that an offender will use to gain the trust and access of both the victim and their circle of trust. So that being typically the family. Mm -hmm. You know, there are various things that parents need to look for as red flags of grooming behavior. So just off the top of my head, some that a lot of people could probably misinterpret, but I'll give you a a preface on this. Mm -hmm. When you hear these signs, you may go, well, you know, so-and-so does that. And I don't, you know, I totally trust them. Like it can't be that they're grooming my child. These are behaviors that may be very familiar. However, if your gut tells you that something doesn't feel right and you notice these signs, right, that is is an alarm going off in your head saying, like, pay attention to this behavior. So if you see a number of these behaviors or you start to see an evolution of these behaviors starting to happen by a particular individual, those are usually signs that you know, this could be a potentially dangerous person in your child's life. So listen to your gut. And then, you know, look at the list. Are these different things in combination with my gut feeling telling me something's up, then you want to make sure that you're paying closer attention, you're removing access, specifically unsupervised access. And it's not to say that, you know, it's a definite, yes, this person is abusing my child, but this is an opportunity for you to start asking your child more questions about, you know, what kind of games do you play with this person? Or, you know, just more inquisitive questions about what they do with that child, right? Mm -hmm. But here are some of the things to look for. So if the person seems to be very affectionate, you know, so not anything sexual, but a lot of touching, maybe sometimes even crossing a boundary, like if they're tickling the child and the child says stop, or, you know, they're very evidently not enjoying it, but the person keeps doing it. They're not respecting body boundaries, even if it seems like not ill intentioned, Mm -hmm. that is a potential grooming sign because they normalize touch so that when they move to making it sexualized, the child may not feel like it is such a violation, you know, and if they haven't been given that abuse prevention education yet, the child may not recognize it as abusive yet. So paying attention to that. Another one is excessive gift giving or giving gifts outside of a a time that seems appropriate, like birthdays or holidays. You know, if they're giving the child a lot of, even if it's a small treat or or candy or ice cream, like you, you notice that they're excessive in how much gift giving that they're doing. That's a red flag, but particularly if they've asked the child not to tell the parent. So Mm. this could be a grandparent going for ice cream and hey, don't tell mom because, you know, then she's not going to let me give you ice cream anymore. So if your child hasn't been taught about secret safety and they keep that secret, that's the the offender testing to see if the child is willing to keep a secret, right? And a lot of times there's this testing behavior that happens with an offender. Grooming can take time. It can take months even or or even a year or more to really try to gain the trust. So it's important to pay attention to these things and not just discount them as like, oh, they're just super nice and they really love my child, right? Another one is if they ask to spend alone time with them. So what that would look like is like, oh, I can babysit, you know, if you need me to pick them up or, you know, I'm happy to, like if they're always offering that free childcare without you, you know, and if you invite yourself and they kind of, oh, no, no, it's okay. You don't have Mm. to, you know, I can do like, that's another thing to pay attention to. So those three, for example, are really key ones. There are some others, but just pay attention to when someone is kind of favoring your child. If you notice that, you know, that even for an older child, if they, for example, get online with them, and you notice that they're spending a lot of time online, maybe it could be with a family member or a, you know, a teacher, a coach, whoever it is, If it's an inappropriate contact outside of Mm -hmm. what the norm is, that's definitely a red flag. So there's different things. I actually have a a PDF on grooming. So if if anybody wants to see the full list, you can definitely download that and get more information on it. Yeah, yeah. I'll put that in the show notes. It's so important to know those signs because that's really how the majority of abuse happens is through those relationships of built trust because then the child is really conflicted if something does happen, like this is someone that I love and trust, and I guess this is okay. And maybe, you know, I shouldn't tell, 
you know, so this is where you really want to pay attention if you see those signs. Now, I know you just mentioned secret safety. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So secret safety, I I think, is one of the most important things. Once your child is about between four and five, and it really depends on their, you know, developmental stage, but between four and five, they can start to understand the concept of tricky people, the concept of secrets. And this is where you want to explain to your child the difference between secrets and surprises and even privacy, you know, private information and things like that. Like what is okay for you to keep to yourself and not share? What is the difference between a secret and surprise? And this really is an important distinction because I always tell parents, create a a secret safety rule or policy in your home, which means that you should let your child know we do not keep secrets in our home. If anyone asks you to keep a secret, you let them know we don't keep secrets in our home. Mm. So giving them some language to use if anybody does ask them to keep a secret, again, because the majority of the time an offender is going to test the child to see if they're willing to keep a secret. But if they have an immediate answer that says our family doesn't keep secrets, that offender is going to recognize that this child is not an easy target. They're being educated in their home and they're going to move move on to the next person. So it can be a really strong defense for a child to use that language and to say, we don't keep secrets in our home. That's our secret safety rule. And so explaining to them the difference between a secret and a surprise helps them to understand when it's okay and not okay to keep, you know, because obviously, I, you know, if you have a surprise birthday party or a surprise gift for someone, you want the child to feel excited that they have this, you know, juicy thing that they want to share, but you know, it's just not yet. And so it allows them to have that element of surprise and joy, but knowing what the difference is and and having that safety understanding. And also the the concept of a tricky person is really key for kids to understand so that they, they realize not everybody is telling the truth at all times. We don't have to make it a scary conversation. We can use examples from films that they watch, cartoons, for example, Elsa in in uh, Frozen, right? Mm-hmm. Or not Elsa, I guess her sister got tricked by the prince in the first movie, right? And he seemed to be a good guy, but he ended up being a tricky person. He wasn't telling the truth. He wasn't a good guy. So this is a way that we can explain this concept and why it's important that kids verify information. So if something doesn't feel right, if they you know learn to listen to their gut, which is another part of body safety, then they can talk to an adult and say, you know, so-and-so told me this and they asked me not to say anything, but it didn't seem like it was bad, but I'm not sure, you know, so they can feel safe and open to talk about what the conflict is and be able to have that line of communication open with you. So that's another really important piece of it. And, you know, is that the same age that you're teaching these things? Like, you know, the difference between a tricky person and I'm I'm assuming this is just a constant conversation, especially when there's going to be a little bit more independence, say they're going to a party or they're going to someone's house, you know, that sort of thing where you have like a quick conversation here and there. But when do you suggest to kind of start this, this talk with your children? In general, I think you know, just to give you a bit of a timeline, when your child is at the stage where they're beginning to potty train, for example, they're transitioning, you know, from diapers to the toilet, this is a great opportunity to start talking about private parts and private part safety. So we want to start by just naming the parts, getting them to understand all the names, talking about the functions of those parts. And then you can talk about safety, what is safe and not safe in terms of, you know, touching. And then, you know, I talk about when when you're doing that potty training, it's a really great time to explain to the child, to narrate what you're doing, how you're helping them to clean, when is that appropriate, who it's appropriate with, that very initial stage of body safety education. Once you've, you know, talked about autonomy and consent and all those things, Mm -hmm. you start with that. And that's, you know, anywhere between two and four. Okay. From there, you want to start, you know, talking about secret safety between four and five or, or four and up, basically. So even if your child is eight and you never had that conversation, you can start now. It's never too late, you know. So having that conversation is really key. Some of the other pieces that you want to start also talking about is helping children to learn how to connect with their safety network. So you want to build a safety network of adults that they can truly trust, that they feel trustworthy. So it's, you know, creating a safety network is really key because if someone were to threaten them or bribe them 
and they feel like they can't come to the parent, they should have another adult that they can go to for help. So that's a really key lifeline that you want to help kids always have. Mm -hmm. And also the way to access those safety people, right? And having a conversation with those people that you've invited to be part of your safety network to say, you know, would you be willing to be in our safety group? And this is what the the responsibility entails, including like how to respond to my child if they ever came to you with, you know, a disclosure. So that's also part of it. And explaining to your child, we've set up a safety network. This is how you can access help if you ever need it. You know, from there, you want to start educating them about you know, safety passwords, if they're starting to become a lot more independent, you want to give them some additional tools for accessing you. So if your child is older, and they're going to a sleepover, and they have some kind of way to text you, you can use something like the X plan, which is that the child would text you with the letter X, because they're in an unsafe situation, and they can't really say more, or they are afraid to say more, and you immediately know something's wrong, I need to go pick them up, and you call back, and say, hey, something happened, I need to pick you up. So it gives the child an out without them kind of being called out in in a situation. So there's lots of different strategies that you can implement based on age at that point to make sure that your child knows how to access you in case of anything. So giving them some strategies for reporting, for accessing help, you know, talking about courage and helping them develop their intuition are also key pieces of body safety. So there's a lot of moving parts, but it's gradual, right? It's all part of an ongoing conversation. So it doesn't, you don't have to do all of this when they're four, but you want to build, you know, through their development and know that this is an ongoing conversation all the way until they're, you know, basically leaving for college, right? You want to make sure that you're helping guide them through all of those relationships that they end up having. Yeah, absolutely. So how can parents talk to their relatives and the the child's caregivers without offending them about abuse prevention. I can imagine that, you know, there's definitely some people that would be like, wait, you want to talk to me about what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so how do we approach that? I, I love, love, love this question because I think a lot of times we we think, okay, I've got to educate myself, teach my kids, and then they're going to be like bulletproof. And the truth is that our kids are not responsible for preventing abuse. That's our job. And the way that we do that is by being vocal with the people in our child's life to let them know what we're doing and to call them in. You know, I think a lot of times people immediately think, oh, they're going to be offended. But if we come from this place of wanting to educate and wanting to inform and wanting to bring them into the fold instead of making them feel like they're being pointed at, it can go a long way to getting people on board with you. And for those that don't, you know, want to be on board, well, then you have to make that choice and decide you know, how much unsupervised visits do I want to give so and so if they're not willing to, you know, agree with what we're doing, and they don't want to support that. Also, it's a really great way to filter out potential predators, right? Because if they know that you are an empowered, proactive safety family, they're going to back away, they're going to realize that you're not an easy target. And offenders do look for the easiest targets. So a little bit of prevention can go a long way. When we take that stance of saying, hey, we are, you know, embarking on this education, uh, we really want to make sure that our kids are empowered and that they know, and here's why, right? Here's the information. Look at these statistics. This is the reality of the problem. And we just want to make sure that, you know, we are including everybody to be on board because we know that you love our child. We know you care about them here's how you can participate with us, right? And that can be for teachers, coaches, babysitters, relatives. What I did because I'm a survivor and it, you know, I always had the sim- similar fear of like confrontation, you know, somebody's going to go, what are you telling me that, you know, I'm a pedophile or something. And so I thought, how can I make this easier for other survivors who also have a hard time setting boundaries I actually created uh, consent letters. And there are these templates that help you to communicate all of this in a really diplomatic way that helps people understand the why, the how, and want to be part of this solution. You know, they want to be part of the safety team. And it's a really great way for you to be able to just communicate that without having that direct talk initially. And it's kind of an icebreaker because they're going to come back and say, oh my goodness, you know, 
this is really interesting. I'd love to know more. Or how, how does it work with this? You know, and it's a really great conversation starter to get this going so that people don't feel like you're pointing a finger, you know, and uh, again, for those who feel hesitant, because they think it's going to be confrontational, this really takes the edge off of that and helps you to communicate in a way that gives them all the information clearly. And you know, you can you can do this just by putting what's in your heart on on paper or in an email, right? And saying, this is the why, this is the how, and we're inviting you in. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the more that we do this, the safer our circles of adults are going to be around our kids. And I also just as a separate side note, want to remind parents that it isn't just adults. It's not just men and women. It's unfortunately, nowadays, also an increasing risk of peers. So it's important that we're vocal with the parents of the kids that are playing with our kids, right? Because then hopefully, they'll say, you know what, that's really interesting. I want to learn about that. And I want to help educate my children. And when we educate other kids, then those families become safer families for our kids to be playing with. Yeah. I was looking previously, you have these consent letters over on your website that can you explain those just a little bit more? Because I think these kind of dive into what we were just saying when you're when you're talking to, you know, family relatives and and people that are taking care of your child, right? Yeah. Yeah. Even doctors, you know, so funny enough, the reason that I actually developed these consent letters was because of the Larry Nasar case and how he was, you know, doing things that were not appropriate, obviously, even during medical exams, sometimes with parents even being in the room because they were so trusting of, oh, obviously, this is a medical professional, my child should basically do what they say. Mm-hmm. So when I started creating these, it was basically a letter to a doctor to say, we're practicing consent in our home, this is how we practice it. So before, you know, doing whatever it is that you need to do, please inform our child, let them know what it is you need to do, if you can, how you need to do it. So if it's an ear exam, you know, hey, I need to check your ear. And I think most doctors will do this. But a lot of times they will just start the exam without waiting for the child to say, okay. And so it was just a first communication tool, because I think a lot of parents aren't sure how to communicate with the doctor about you know, how do we explain that this is how we're practicing at our home. Mm -hmm. So the letter basically was like, here's how we do it. And, you know, if you can, please, you know, adhere to this so that my child understands that this is how a a medical process would go. And I always say this doesn't apply to emergencies. (laughs) Like if your child is in the emergency room, they need medical attention. it, It doesn't necessarily apply there. But if you're going for an eye exam or the dentist or just a regular well checkup, these things can be practiced. And I think even with our doctor, you know, he used to always go in for a tickle. And I know he's a very well intentioned person, there was nothing that ever gave me a sense of, oh, you know, he's he's not a good guy. However, there was this immediate, like, just going in for the tickle. And I think for kids, when they're little, it can feel really intimidating. And if they see us permit that, even if they don't want it, it sends a very mixed signal when we're talking about boundaries and consent. Oh, for sure. You know, yeah. So just to to make sure that we're having that consistency across the board with all the people that interact with our child, it's always like, how do I say this? And how do I talk about this? So the letter explains it. And you, you know, I say to parents like, bring it in, give it to the receptionist so that, you know, the nurse can have it ahead of time. And if there's any questions, they can go over it with you. And then that really inspired me to say, well, what about teachers? You know, what about coaches? What about babysitters? What about relatives? What about sleepovers? You know, what about all of these situations where our kids are engaging sometimes independently with others? And we we just want to let them know this is what we're doing. And, you know, particularly for family members like grandparents, please don't keep secrets, you know, please, like, this is why we're doing it. This is how we're doing it. We're asking you not to ask our child to keep secrets. So these these letters are just templates that you can tweak a little bit here and there and customize for your language. But essentially, the bulk of the information is there. It can also be applicable for co-parents, right? One parent is teaching it in one home, but the other isn't. And so getting that congruency is really important. And I've even made some videos now. So one co-parent can send the video and it's me speaking, explaining all of this. So it just makes it easier to, again, break the ice of the conversation and get the questions going and the conversation and the dialogue so that everybody can get on board. Yeah, that's great. 
you know, you mentioned this doctor doing this going in for a tickle thing and it just kind of like kind of floored me because then I was like, that's kind of just like setting the stage for, okay, here is a very trusted person right in your circle. We always, I mean, typically people always teach, you know, it's it's okay for the doctor to be able to do this because they're checking you, mommy and daddy are right here or mommy's here, daddy's here. And I can't imagine, you know, so the child is like, oh, okay, well, my doctor does that. So that must be okay. And it's definitely not, you know, so such an important distinction and for children to know that, you know, like this is not something that's okay for someone to do. Yeah, that would, that would definitely not be, that would be something. I mean, like you said, he's, he was very kind and, and didn't mean anything by it, but it's definitely one of those things that to me kind of like sets up a red flag for like a future incident where they meet somebody and, or, you know, somebody within their circle and and they're doing that and they're like, oh, it's okay because of this, you know? Right. A position of authority, you know, and I think kids like they're always looking for our cues. And if we okay that because we don't know how to respond to it, it can feel really awkward. And then we're not sure, like, did I not support my child? Like they didn't seem to really like the tickle, but I know they're well-meaning. So like, what do I do? And so this having a letter to kind of explain that ahead is is really helpful. And when I gave that letter to our doctor, he's the one that pointed it out. And he he looked at it and he said, you know, I never really thought about that. And I'm so glad that you gave me this. Like mm. I go I go in for tickles all the time, but you're right. Like I shouldn't I mean, do we do that with other adults, you know? Right. <laughs> Can you imagine? It's like who goes and like just pats you on the head? Oh, hey, good to see you. And you know, they pat you on the head. Like we treat kids in a way that really asserts our authority, you know, and mm. it, it's really not okay. So part of that education is not just for our children, but for the adults that interact with them. Yeah. All right. So I have some some questions from the community. Is there anything that you wanted to add into this this part of the conversation before we move on? I just want to highlight that it really is our job to be the advocates for our child and to model boundary setting. And when we do that, we're teaching our children through our example of how to set boundaries. So it's a really great way to be their advocate, to educate the adults around our children, to give a red flag of warning to potential offenders, like hands off because our family's proactive. And it's also just a great model for children to see and to feel truly seen, heard, and validated in their own experiences and know that they have someone who has their back. So it's really important that we do take that next step beyond just educating our kids, but also educating those around our kids. Yeah. And I I really liked what you had to say earlier on in the conversation, which is that, and I've even done this, where you know I feel like the majority of my teaching thus far has been you know, everybody out there is not always good. And I've even gotten these books for the kids, you know, that we we read them and then we talk about them and break them down. But it's always about like this boogeyman that's going to come out of the woodworks. And I think a better way of approaching it, especially in the beginning, like you said, is to to more empower them, like allowing them to to learn about consent and their body and to set rules and boundaries for themselves before we even introduce any of these other these other things. So I think that that's really something important that you had mentioned earlier that I just wanted to reemphasize. Okay, so let's see here. Let me bring up some questions. Oh yeah, I, there's a lot of these over and over again. So let's talk about this. So I have a daughter with a cognitive disability or, you know, in in some other cases, just some disability in general. And we talked about this earlier, how they're definitely more at risk. What are extra precautions that you would advise for that? Yeah. So this is, again, a perfect example of why us as advocates for, you know, the people that are going to be caregivers is so key. And to explain, like, this is what we're teaching at home because our kids are going to still be learning. And I think we put a lot of expectations to say, oh, my child has to learn how to like fend for themselves in a sense, you know, and Mm -hmm. while we are teaching them all of these body safety pieces, we have to be the first ones, that first line of defense. So this is where it's so key that you talk to the caregivers and say, we're starting to practice this. I'm starting to teach this. This is how we practice it. This is how we would really appreciate you engaging, you know, in any kind of, you know, necessary physical contact. And then as you move through that process, you know, continuing to let them know we're, we're now moving into this stage, or this is how this is progressing. 
with this education. And so just keeping it top of mind for those caregivers, because unfortunately, a lot of times it is the caregivers, right, that are the offenders in these situations. So speaking up, being really vocal is number one. And then number two is really helping your child to use as much in terms of body language and facial cue recognition as possible. If it's, let's say, a verbal delay, or if there is other cognitive disabilities that are not allowing the the speech to develop as well. So you want to be able to give them as much body language and facial cues information, you know, and there's lots of different ways, by the way, for children to learn. I think a lot of times we think it has to just be me talking about it, but using tools like books, videos, posters, really reinforcing. Another example too, is like with family members, if your child is going to be sleeping over at grandparents' house, bring along a safety book and say, hey, grandma or grandpa, like this is the book that we're currently reading. I would love for you to read this at bedtime because I really like this book. There's some really great ones. Like, for example, can I give a squish or can I get a squish? I think it's called, it's by a really great author. And I can give you that later if you want to put it in the show notes. But it's a really great book that kids love. And it's also really great as a way to reinforce to family members who are going to read it along with them about consent and and touch and, and these kinds of things in a way that doesn't feel like a safety book necessarily, but it is. So giving additional tools to those caregivers and also, you know, to our children, because, you know, children learn in all different ways. They can be, you know, auditory, visual, it can be more tactical, like there's so many different ways. So giving as many ways for the child to understand this information, activities and games, particularly for helping them to even understand their emotions. So helping them develop emotional literacy is really key for children with disabilities so that they can help express some of that. And you can pick up signs, you know, red flag signs earlier if there is something going on. Those are the things that I would recommend for that. And I'm actually currently reading a book that I'm going to be doing a review on specifically for autism and children on the spectrum who are also at high risk. So I'll be sharing more about that soon. Excellent. Yeah, I actually, as we were talking, wrote down book suggestions, question mark. So I know you mentioned that one book. (laughs) Are there any other ones that you suggest, especially for like the younger years, like a a book that's more of like an introduction to everything? Yeah, there's a really great book called C is for Consent. It's actually a board book. My six-year-old is still reading it because they really love it. And it's just an easy read, has great visuals. And, you know, they can, they can hold it. It's like a really great book to understand like what's going on in the pictures. So that's one that I always recommend. Another one is a hug, which is another great one. And that one is really more about helping kids understand that they can say no, if they don't want a hug and what other ways that they can express, you know, affection if they want or to receive or give affection. So those two are really great for really young Once we start into like four and up, another really great book that I love is called I Said No. And that's by Kimberly King. It's called A Kid to Kid Guide to Private Part Safety. And that one's a really great one that talks about different things. So it's a it's a heavier book, but you can read it in small chunks and it helps you break down some of the the information that you're reading. She actually just did a uh course for kids. It's called Body Boss Bootcamp. And it's based on her book. And it's specifically for kids to watch because she's also a kindergarten teacher, the author of the book. And so she teaches it in a way that she would teach it in a classroom for kindergartners. So it's a really great companion to that book. Yeah, so I highly recommend that. And you can find out more on on her website, which I think is KimberlyKingBooks.com. I highly recommend the book or the course for ages four and up. Okay, I was just going to say, yeah, the, the boot camp itself, is it geared towards like she's a kindergarten teacher, so it's the kindergarten age group that we're looking at? Yeah, I would say that the course and the book is appropriate for ages between like four and six is a good range, yeah. Okay, perfect. Tips on how to start talking about good touching versus bad touching with younger children. First of all, it's a really great question because, and I get that a lot too. I want to start by saying, first of all, let's get rid of that language, Mm -hmm. good versus bad touch. And here's the why. And it's a really important why. When we're talking about private parts and, you know, I believe in a full education on this. So not just what those parts are and not just vagina, but I'm talking about, you know, educating on vulva and scrotum and like all the parts. It's important that we also talk about function, right? So, you know, there's parts that are for urination, there's parts for, you know, other other things, right? 
But we also want them to know that these areas are sensitive areas. There are more concentrated nerve endings in these parts of our bodies than anywhere else in our bodies. You know, this is why kids explore those parts. They, they suddenly feel good once they become aware of them. And we don't want to, you know, shame them for, for self-exploration. It's actually really important and healthy and age appropriate for them to do that. But we want to create some safety parameters, right? So it's okay for you to do that, but it's not okay for you to touch anybody else there. And it's not okay for anybody else to touch you there. So we want to use the language of safe versus unsafe. So safe is you, you can touch it, or when it's time to clean and mommy needs to help you, this is how it's safe, you know, so we want to narrate, like, for example, when we're wiping from the front to the back, this is how mommy helps you wipe, this is, see how how long this takes, it shouldn't take more than this, right? So we want to narrate what we're doing, how long things should take, that becomes the basis for like, this is what's safe. What wouldn't be safe is somebody else doing it or a friend trying to touch you or asking you to see. So this is where we start to differentiate what is safe, what is not safe. And usually kids will, you know, just go along with it. Some kids might be more curious and say, well, why is it safe or unsafe, right? That's the second conversation once you explain safe versus safe. But I want parents to get away from the language of good versus bad because since those areas are sensitive and they may feel good to touch, a child may get really tripped up that this is a bad touch, but it feels good, right? And offenders also know that. So if the child hasn't been educated on that and they're taught good or bad touch, and yet it feels good if the person touches them and they're like confused now and the offender you know, can manipulate the child to say, no, no, it's okay. Like it feels good. So it's not bad touch, you know? that can really confuse a child and make them feel implicated. If, if it did happen, they might not report it because they're ashamed of the fact that it felt good, even though they were told that it should be a bad touch. So this is a really important distinction to make when you're talking about the language that you use. And so don't use good or bad touch, use safe or unsafe touch. And I would say to start that basically when you're potty training, like as soon as you're getting into that and the, and the child can start to learn that language, that's the time to start this education. Yeah. Okay. So there's a lot of questions about sleepovers and, you know, I know there's not going to be like some hard rule that you have for us, but a lot of people are just asking, you know, is there a way to make them safer? What would you consider safe? Is it, you know, your child's best friend whom you know, the parents whom you, you trust at what point do you think it's okay that they're at a certain age where they can understand the conversations that you've had within the home, you know, about unsafe versus safe, about consent, about all of those things. What are your thoughts on that? I have a lot of thoughts. <laughs> so the thing is with sleepovers, it's really up to the parent, you know, if they had a safe experience, and I've heard this many times, nothing happened to me at a sleepover and I had a blast and it was great and I want my kids to have that experience. And that's totally fine, as long as you have an understanding of a few things. And here's what you need to consider, especially nowadays, because we live in a very different world. I'm 43. When I was a kid, we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have the internet. We didn't have access to porn so easily, right? So there's a lot of things that you need to now factor in. So one of the first things that you need to know before you okay a sleepover is, first of all, who is in the home? Who lives in the home? Is it just the mom? Does, is there a stepdad? Is there an older sibling? Like you need to know who lives in the home, who's going to be in the home. Do they have a guest that's there that is, you know, staying over? Does the teenager that lives in the home, do they have supervised internet access or is it a free for all, right? Do we know that? Unfortunately, peer on peer abuse is on the rise. And where it most frequently will happen is in situations like this, right? If there's an older child that has had some kind of access to explicit content, and now they're maybe not getting any education in the home about it. So they're curious and oh, there's an opportunity, right? There's a bunch of kids that are sleeping over. So we want to be cognizant of what are the rules in the home as it relates to internet? Are there older siblings? Who else is living there? And then also, like, how much education does your child have about body safety, right? Like, if they are four and they haven't really gotten all the information, 
then how safe is it for them to really be going to a sleepover? Even if they're six and they haven't gotten that or eight and they haven't gotten that information. So making sure that they understand what is safe and unsafe and that they have a connection to their safety line. So, you know, I talked about having a safety network before. Does the child have access? Are they going to be able to reach out if they are in an unsafe situation? So we want to make sure that we have some safety lines that they have access to in the event that they feel they can't call us or for whatever reason they can't call us. They've tried to call us and they're not reaching us because our phone is out of range or whatever it is. Who else do they have as a backup to call? So these are some of the things that you need to be considering in 2021, 2022. You know, and even if it's at a grandparent's house, right? You feel like you can trust the grandparent, but like, is anybody visiting? Is anybody else going to be there? You know, how safe do you feel? Do you see any grooming signs? Is there anything that gives you any kind of sense of like, "Hmm, maybe this isn't the time yet? And then having, you know, that conversation, like, have you talked to the family to say, hey, we're teaching this abuse prevention in our home. And, you know, here's some information if you're interested in learning more about it. Like, how well do you know that family or that home or that child, right? So these are some of the things that I think parents need to consider before just automatically saying, yes, I had a great experience. I want my kids to have a great experience. Let's make sure that we've built some safety and, you know, have done our homework about the the home that they're going to be sleeping at. Yeah. Our kids are not allowed to do sleepovers until age seven, where we then talk about the sleepover in general and if it could ever happen. And My oldest, who's eight, has only done a sleepover once. And the family that we had the sleepover with, they're on the same page as us as far as sexual abuse prevention. Like she talks to her girls about it all the time. Like we're very much on the same page. We trust them a lot. So it was like, you're right next door. I feel very comfortable about this. But I mean, it's really hard not to have this mentality of I'm never letting my child sleep over anybody else's house. Yeah. I just feel like there are so many things you can't control. Like, does that person have siblings? Is that person's siblings going to have friends over? Are the parents going to be there? But do the parents have friends over? You know, just like all of these factors that you may or may not know about. But you can ask those questions. Yes, exactly. Yep. Yeah. And like you said, it's the the statistics are are true and real. And I do think that they're underreported for sure, just like many things are. But it's crazy to have gone through an entire childhood, like, you know, and I I had many sleepovers with in, in some cases when I was a teenager at least. My mom didn't even know I was sleeping over certain houses. I would say I was somewhere else, you know. And so It's just to think about all those things can be really, really overwhelming. But again, I hope that this episode is is more empowering for parents more than anything, just to educate and empower our children, just to make the right choices when they're younger. And that will just empower them as they get older too, especially when they're a teenager. Absolutely. And and for those who are, you know, starting to feel overwhelmed by hearing this, just know that it's really just about becoming more conscious of slowing down about the decisions that we make about our children's independence, because really that's what it comes down to, right? It's like when they start to become more and more independent, we don't want to restrict them so much that when they get to a certain age, they're just going to like do whatever they want anyway, without telling us, right? And that was my experience growing up. Like I grew up in a very strict Catholic home. My mom being an immigrant didn't speak English So she didn't, she couldn't ask these questions. So I wasn't allowed to go to sleepovers. I think I went to one sleepover my whole like childhood. And meanwhile, my friends were like going to sleepovers left and right. And I felt really left out, you know? So I get it for parents who are like, I don't want my child to miss out on these things. Yeah, It's not about them missing out. It's just about being more aware of how we can make those experiences safer. And it doesn't ever guarantee that they will be 100% safe, even if we do all the things right. Yeah, It's really just about giving our kids as many tools as possible, being as proactive and, and as much of an advocate for our kids as possible versus how perhaps, you know, I think if my mom had educated me on so many other things, I could have made better choices or different choices. And I wouldn't have had, you know, the different experiences that I did have. But Ultimately, you know, she lived in fear and I didn't want to be that parent either. Like I didn't want to not send my child to that summer camp because they would have missed out on a fun experience. 
But I also just now know that I have to be more conscientious and it, and it doesn't have to be overwhelming. We can take these things one step at a time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as long as we're moving in that direction and doing all that we can in whatever ways we can, you know, it, it's progress and that's going to always help your child. Yes. All right. So before we close, is there anything else that you think is important that we might have missed or didn't touch on? I think we covered just about everything. The the only thing that I would say is just to share more of this information with other parents. Like even if you're not necessarily asking them to be part of your safety network or anything, just to start being more vocal about this as the issue that it actually is. Like the, the fact that parents feel uncomfortable having these conversations is exactly what perpetuates the problem. And if we're not willing to be a little bit more uncomfortable so that our kids don't have to be uncomfortable in those situations, we're not going to make any progress in ending this problem. And it, it really is, unfortunately, through this pandemic has made the issue worse. Mm. And one of the things that I want parents to keep in the back of their mind is that there is a higher potential for peer to peer abuse because of what's been going on in the last two years. And so just be aware that it is important to talk to your kids about their body rights and about those fundamental body safety pieces of private part safety at the very minimum. That is the most important conversation that you can have as your kids go into daycare or into preschool or, you know, or starting their new, you know, you have one kid that's starting preschool and one kid that's going off into middle school, but you have two kids that really need that refresher of body safety before they start. So just being aware of the fact that they do need this and it is important now more than ever. And the more you can share it and be vocal and be the advocate is going to really, you know, help protect your family better. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so I'm going to ask you two questions that are unrelated to the conversation that we had today. So the first question I'm going to ask you is, if you could give one piece of advice to a new mom, what would it be? Don't sacrifice your sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Ever. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Like if you can get any kind of support, whether it's from a spouse or a friend who volunteers to like let you sleep a little bit more at night or who, you know, can be in the home while you're taking a nap, like take it. Don't be ashamed of taking the help because sleep is so critical. And I think the more well-rested you are, the more you're going to enjoy that baby experience and that that motherhood experience that I think so many of us feel burnt out by. Mm, oh, absolutely. Oh my gosh. I wish I had done that more when I was, you know, I had my first, but you know, you learn the hard way. <laughs> I know. And it's when you get sleep, you're so much able to handle situations, tackle things differently. I mean, there is just such a huge difference. And all of our kids, they sleep pretty well. Um, knock on wood. And last week, all four of them, they were in like cahoots together. They were taking turns like every 15 minutes to 30 minutes, like coming into our bedroom or crying or doing whatever. I mean, it was, there must've been a full, I don't know what was going on. There must've been a new moon or something happening. I mean, truly I was like, I don't understand. This is so bizarre, but I was, you know, every day I felt on edge. I was not patient with my children. I wasn't patient with myself. I wasn't patient with my husband. You know, I'm trying to cook dinner. I burnt everything. You know, it gets everything comes to a head, and it really makes all the difference when you're actually getting the sleep you need. I agree 100. Mm-hmm. percent So the second question is: If you could make one dinner for your family that's relatively quick and easy that everybody will eat, what would it be? Burritos. Mm, yes. <laughs> yes. What do you put in your burritos? Like, what do you make? My kids don't really like mushrooms, so I chop up the mushroom pretty fine. But we do peppers and onions. Typically, it depends. Like sometimes they want chicken burritos. Other times they just want bean burritos. And my husband, who usually cooks, is an amazing chef. So I don't know what else he puts in it, but it's always tasty. And it's pretty easy for me to make too. I I consider myself a much better chef than 15 years ago when I first met him. But it's, you know, it's sort of like that super easy, like I, I know what to chop. I know how to throw it together and the kids always love it. So it's the easiest. Yes. Agree. I love that. And sometimes we'll call it like taco Tuesday, but you know, it could be a fajita, it could be a burrito, whatever you want it to be. 
But yeah, our kids love like making their own and like sometimes they'll just make a burrito bowl instead of having the actual wrap or, you know, there's a lot of different choices. And I think, you know, with kids, it's always, it's always nice to have different choices and for them to be able to like make their own concoction of whatever it is. Gives them a little more autonomy. Yes, exactly. So I will put a lot of the things that we discussed within the episode into the show notes And thank you so much for taking time out of your evening to chat with us and teach us all about this. I think it's so, so important. And I mean, I definitely learned something. So I hope everybody did that was listening as well. Well, thank you so much for inviting me and for making space for this really important topic. So yes, thanks again. Of course. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. All resources mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes on lindsayandco.com. To continue these important conversations, head over to Motherhood Meets Medicine on Instagram. Let me know what you learned from this episode and who you would love to hear from next. I always love getting feedback from you. If you're finding value in this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with a friend. This will help us to reach even more women from around the world. I'll catch you next week. Until then, don't forget to find some time to unplug, unwind, and have a little fun. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.